The Portage Health Foundation is focused on doing its part to improve the health of Baraga, Houghton, Keweenaw, and Ontonagon counties. Our work is intended to increase access to education, mitigate poverty, reduce hunger and poor nutrition, build safe communities, provide access to support healthy living, support medical research and innovation, and improve physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health and well-being. We invite you to see the work we're doing by signing up for our monthly email newsletter. It's free. You can subscribe by going to phfgive.org. Good Sunday morning. Once again, welcome to Copper Country Today. I'm Todd Van Dyke. Our program is brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. Learn more about them at phfgive.org. I got a press release in from the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society the other day, and every once in a while we get uh, we hear from them in terms of the work that they do to find ships that have sunk over the generations in the uh, in Lake Superior and the other portions of the Great Lakes as well. This one caught my eye because the ships that they have discovered actually departed from the Copper Country, from Barriga, as a matter of fact. And so I thought we'd explore this a little bit. First of all, learn about these ships that left Barriga and never made it to their destination more than 100 years ago. And we'll also talk a little bit about the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society in general and what they do and what shipping was like here in the Copper Country 100 years ago. Corey Adkins from the Historical Society joins me for the program. Corey, good morning. Good morning, Todd. Thank you for having us on today. This is, uh, I have noticed over the years that we've pretty much lost track, I think, especially in the Copper Country, of the nautical heritage that we have here. A hundred years ago, most of what we received and used in the Copper Country came in by ship. Most of what we produced here went out by ship. We don't get that anymore. The big ships don't come through the portage. We see them sometimes when they pull in during a storm into Keweenaw Bay and anchor at Safe Harbor or Sometimes we can view them off uh, the peninsula up at Copper Harbor and such. We don't see them like we used to, but a hundred years ago, this was really a shipping center, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, how how uh, how fun and awesome would that have been to have witnessed what was going on back then? You know, a hundred plus years ago, down in the Barriga part of Copper Country, uh, the the Heinz lumber industry um, was a huge presence down there. Um, Edward Hines, the the owner of that uh, the lumber company, was one of the biggest lumber companies in the country at that point. So they were they were hauling millions of board feet of uh, lumber out of that area um, for years, and uh, that's where uh, the the C. F. Curtis, uh, Selden E. Marvin, and and Peterson left from back in. Uh, uh, 1914. Yeah, November of 1914. People who see the the Barriga waterfront today, if you're driving along it on US 41, you see pretty much an open area. You can take a look at the bay. It's quite pretty going along through there. But a hundred years ago, there was that huge Heinz lumber operation it was right on the waterfront. There was a shipbuilding company on the waterfront in Lance. It was quite in Barriga. It was quite an industrial area. There at that point, it's part of the reason I think that we've lost track a little bit of this. Uh, our waterfronts don't look anything like they did a hundred years ago. They were really the centers of commerce and, uh, and also in many cases of manufacturing in this area, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, even if you even today, if you look hard enough, you can still see remnants of of you know yesteryear. Um, but yes, uh, that that was a huge operation um, down there by Barragan Lance. 
So let's cast our view back here for more than 100 years, back to November of 1914. The C.F. Curtis was the steamship, and it had a couple of barges behind it, the Selden E. Marvin and the Annie M. Peterson. They were all laden with lumber and heading where? They were headed uh, towards New York, Tawawanga, New York. Excuse me if I'm pronouncing that wrong, but (laughs) it's, uh, it's over there by Buffalo. It's just north of Buffalo. So they had a long ways to go, and uh, they really didn't make it that far. They they only made it as far as the Grand Marais area. And this huge storm uh, came up, and uh, snow and wind and such. I have to think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Corey, but I have to think that sending out a ship with two barges in tow in adverse weather situation would be a particularly dangerous thing to do. Yeah, I, I mean, on, um, on uh, November 18th, it was, you know, if, if you think of uh, uh, when the Fitzgerald left uh, Wisconsin on November 9th, um, it was a beautiful day. Same same instance here on November 18th, 1914, for the Curtis, Peterson, and Marvin. They left, and then uh, as the 18th turned into the 19th, um, the weather got bad. Nor- nor'easter hit them. And uh, uh, nobody, nobody lived through that. So as they were, uh, as, if you think of the C.F. Curtis as like the engine um, of the, think of it as a train on the water, they were towing these two uh, schooner barges and um, uh, a nor'easter hit them and uh, never to be seen again. Now what exactly is a schooner barge? Uh, I, I'm this. This is something that I've I've learned only over the last few years, as I've done a little research into this. I didn't realize how many of these situations there were, where one ship would be pulling another ship or a barge or two. What is a schooner barge? So the the rigging, the masts are are a bit shorter than a regular, uh, uh, say, a barkentine or a regular sa- sailing vessel. So you can raise sail on schooner barges, but um, they're meant to be towed. So uh, back then, that's that's how uh, the the companies remained economical was uh, with a steamship towing barges behind it. So think of the schooner barges as the train cars behind the engine. And you know sometimes uh, some of these uh, barges would have uh, five or six schooner barges towed behind them. So imagine that uh, seeing that you know, fly across Lake Superior. Which I imagine would work fairly well if the water was calm, but boy, oh boy, <laughs> if, if you if you start to get waves and, and heavy waves like we know can happen on Lake Superior, one of those tow barges gets in trouble. Everybody's doomed. Yeah, and and that that was a common um, uh, happenstance of shipwreck back then. Was if the if a, the tow line snapped, the the schooner barges had no power. And with no power, you're just at the mercy of the wind and the waves and, and uh, Lake Superior's weather. And, uh, you know, you, you went where the, where the storm took you, and more than not, it was at the bottom of, bottom of the lake. And that's what happened on, uh, uh, to the, to the um, Peterson and Marvin and, and uh, uh, Curtis. Now, were all three of these manned? Yes, yes. So the, the Curtis had a, a little bit bigger of a... Uh, crew. I believe it was 12 or 13, and the Peterson and the Marvin had seven crew apiece, I believe. And all of them were lost in this. Yes, yes. So uh, during that storm, um, they were by Grand Marais, and 
it was said that uh, some people may have heard a whistle, but the, the storm was so bad, uh, the, the life-saving crew at Grand Marais uh, never heard them. So the only reason they knew that these vessels wrecked and were gone was bodies of the Curtis and the Peterson started washing ashore, and they, they started finding wreckage, and they even found two members of the Curtis uh, made it to shore and tried to walk towards Grand Marais, but were uh, found on the shoreline frozen. Oh, now, think of that! Now, how how horrible is <laughs> is that? You you make it to shore and you try to make salvation to the life saving service, and the weather takes you out. The elements. Yeah, you mentioned the, uh, the the Edmund Fitzgerald, which went down nearly fifty years ago. Now, it's been since then. We we've not really had a major shipwreck on the Great Lakes. We haven't had loss of life in, in that form. But this was rather common 100 years ago, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, uh, be, between, I would say, uh, you know, 1880, actually the 18, late 1860s to the 1930s is uh, when a lot of these accidents happened. Um, we call it the Shipwreck Coast, which is basically between Grand Marais and Whitefish Point. Um, you could even maybe stretch it to a, a municipe. Um But there's hundreds of ships down there um, along that shipwreck coast. And a lot a lot of them did happen because of uh, a tow line breaking, and the vessel just couldn't handle the weather. People who worked on those ships in those days must have been aware that this was basically life-risking. Yes. I mean, it, it, you just think of uh, from Barriga to um the well you know when you leave Barragan and and go up past point abbey there's there's barely anything there today yeah <laughs> and, and imagine from grand grand marais to whitefish point there's there's still really nothing there there's just a, a cabin here or there so uh imagine back then you don't you don't have radios you can't call for help you can't call the coast guard no helicopters coming to get you so when you're in trouble you're out there and uh, the only the only way your life is going to get saved is either if the life saving service happened to see you, or if you get lucky and and make it to shore and somehow survive the elements when you make it to shore. But it was life and death. That job was a life and death job back then. Were those people well paid in those days? <laughs> you know, I can't honestly answer. I I don't know. Um, it it uh, it seemed to attract a certain type of person. Um, there are a lot of sailors out there, um, like there's a cemetery just west of Whitefish Point here that um, there's a lot of unknown sailors. And those were, uh, this, those were sailors that would wash up around this area and nobody claimed them. So there's, uh, there's, a, there's this cemetery, if you walk through it, it's actually quite sad. There's like, I don't know, 20 grave markers that just simply say unknown. Wow. And those are uh, people that were never identified and you know think of the 28 people that went down on the curtis marvin and peterson those were 28 people 28 families 28 you know men and women that that uh, uh were just gone just doing their job yeah um and and you mentioned the uh, the fact that there's not a lot of development even now along that lake superior shoreline of course in 1914 they were just developing wireless telegraphy for Atlantic vessels, oceanic vessels, but none of that had been installed in any of the vessels on the Great Lakes, to my knowledge, had it? No, and 
I just this is kind of uh, ironic, but even this this look at it this way: even if they had cell phones, we can't even get a cell phone signal on yeah. a whitefish <laughs> point. So <laughs> in 2023, so um, yeah, you're you're out there, and, and it, that's why they had five different um, life saving service stations along the shipwreck coast. Um, so if uh, the lifesavers spotted a vessel in need, they would try to save them. Um, but lots of times, uh, uh, Lake Superior won the game. Yeah, and of course, we have the life-saving stations here on the Keweenaw Peninsula, too. The one uh, up on the on the peninsula was very active in terms of saving some people from various shipwrecks uh, from during that time. And there's a museum up here that honors they, those people, because those people had a tough job and were very brave as well. Yeah, yeah, and that is a beautiful museum up there, but... Um, that's one thing that, that connects us is uh, all that maritime history. And that's one of our goals here is to remember that maritime history and uh, uh, respect and remember everybody who did lose their lives and also tell the stories of survival, too. Talking with Corey Adkins with the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society. They recently announced that two of the three vessels we're talking about, the C.F. Curtis, the steamship, and the barges Selden E. Marvin and Annie M. Peterson, were located off Grand Marais. They sank more than 100 years ago. Uh, you've got one to find yet, correct? Yes, we, we still have the Peterson to find. Um, it, uh, and we, uh, we will be looking for that this, uh, this summer. Uh, shipwreck hunting, as we call it, takes a lot of a lot of time and energy and, and money and such. And we, uh, our director of marine operations, Daryl Ortel, um, he goes out every summer when he can, when the weather is right, because the weather has to be somewhat uh, nice. And uh, he tows a towfish, and he does forty mile grids. What is so a go towfish? One way, forty miles and turn around and come back forty miles. What is a and towfish? He finds where the ships aren't. What 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 is a tow fish? Define that for me. Uh, it's a sonar unit. Oh, okay, okay. So um, he basically goes out and just just kind of crisscrosses, hoping to either find something or eliminate areas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we 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 call it mowing the lawn, and so he finds out where the, where the ships aren't, and then um, it can be very tedious and boring. <laughs> but I can when imagine. when you get that blip, when you when you see that blip, and you you see the shadows of the sonar and you know it's a shipwreck that's that's quite an exciting feeling and uh, he's, he's very good at what he does um, and uh, from there when we get that blip we can't just go down and identify it um, we have to wait pull the sonar back up come back in the port uh, mount a crew and then take our ROV out and put the ROV down on the wreck to identify it and sometimes that can take a year because to put the ROV down we even need calmer seas and, and, and better weather. But when we do put that ROV down and uh, search a wreck that hasn't been seen in, in uh, over 100 years, it's, it's, uh, it's quite uh, exciting and exhilarating to see something that nobody's seen in such a long time. Yeah, the, um, how do you, do, do you get a feeling uh, when you get that blip on the radar? Do you have a clue what ship might be down there? Because... We don't really know where these ships went down. There was no communication, certainly no GPS. How do you begin the process of figuring out which ship you're looking at? Um, so it, it, it will tell you how long and, and the width of a lot of these ships, our sonar will. So we cross-reference that to some of the old books. Um, 
you know, say, uh, um, I think the Curtis was 176 feet long, and if the, the sonar, I'm sorry, it was 196 feet long, and the sonar will basically measure it to around 200 feet. So we can cross-reference that and go, wow, that might be the Curtis. And with some of these ships, you can kind of make out, if the sonar image is good enough, you can kind of make out the shape. Okay. And sometimes you can see the cargo holds in them. Sometimes you can see a mast or two. So uh, it, it's it's kind of a process of elimination, but you, you really don't know until <clears throat> until you get the ROV down and, and, and see what's on the ship. And uh, one of the big things we look for to pot, you know, to, totally identify it is the name board um and uh when we uh discovered the marvin that name board just shines like a beacon <laughs> yeah you sent uh, a picture after, along with that years yeah I, that the picture that you sent along with that uh, was just amazing i thought well there's no mistaking what uh, which this one is some others yeah. i suppose uh, maybe a little murkier <laughs> <laughs> the uh the the on the curtis we we never found uh, the name board that says Curtis, so we're, we're, we are going to try to go back and look more. But with that one, we knew it was the Curtis because it had Edward Hines Lumber Company right on the side of it, and Edward Hines was kind of a, a hubris fella, and he people to see his name, so his name was on the side of that ship, and it, it was it's funny because it was in drop it was in drop red. So it had a drop shadow red, like, you know, like he would design it on a computer these days with drop shadows. So it's, uh, when, when we saw that, it's like, yep, that is the Curtis for sure. What kind of uh, liability did a company like uh, Heinz Lumber have if a ship went down? Obviously, they lost their payload, but what kind of uh, liability, what kind of obligation did they have to the people who were on board working for them on those ships? You know, the, the Curtis, Peterson, and Marvin, when they left port, they had 3 million board feet of lumber going to New York. And um, during that storm, um, they, they lost almost a quarter of their fleet. So Edward Hines lost almost a quarter of his fleet that day. That had to have been, an, you know, a ton of money. Um, and, and then, more importantly, the 28 lives. I do know that uh, Heinz did send up some search crews trying to find any survivors or, you know, any um, bodies or anything like that and tried to recover all the, the, some of the logs and stuff that washed ashore, but there was nothing really that they could do. Um, as far as liabilities to the family members, you know, back then, um, I, I know on the, when the nucleus said that the men who survived that were Paid, they they got their they they got money for their clothes and they got a free meal. So it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't that um, it's not like you'd get you know a hundred thousand dollars or something like that. It was very minimal what you would get. Yeah, I know that uh, here we talk about basically death on the job being part of the job. A hundred years ago in the copper mines, we lost a man a week to death yeah. on the job. And I suppose it was viewed very similarly out on the, out on the lakes. If you went out, you were taking your chances. Yeah. And a lot of these crew members would, would, uh, swap ships too. say, say one would, uh, stay at port and Barriga, you know, coming off one ship and then maybe go on another ship. And a lot of those crew manifests were never updated. So that's why there's so many unknown sailors and unknown grave markers. That was going to be my next question. Do we know who these sailors were 
uh, who were on these ships, uh, if we've been able to maybe even track down some of their descendants, let them know that this has been found. That is one of our main goals is to uh, search out for descendants and to search out um, for people that, you know, that maybe lost a great grandfather or, or still talk about, hey, you know, my, my mom or my dad was on the Curtis and, um, you know, we never knew what happened to them, but now we know what happened to them. And there is a gravestone in Sault uh, Ste. Marie uh, that does have a lot of the names of the, of the crew, not all of them, but a lot of them. And uh, so there, there is some sort of a marker, but it's our goal to, to find, you know, any sort of family member that wants to know what happened to their descendants. Even after all this time, that's a great mission. Corey Adkins yeah. is with the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society. Of course, most of us know your organization through the wonderful museum you have on Whitefish Point. I've been there several times, uh, many years ago with my son, a few years ago with my grandsons, and always enjoy a visit there. If you're in the eastern part of the Upper Peninsula, make sure that you take a look because you've got a wonderful collection of artifacts there, uh, again, honoring not only the ships that went down, but the people who served on them. Yeah, we have a shipwreck museum, and um, a lot of people come up here to uh, see the Bell of the Fitzgerald. Um, but when they go into our museum and start to walk around and learn about some of the other wrecks that have happened around here, their eyes open wide. And, um, you know, the, the Edmund Fitzgerald is a, a very important shipwreck, and it's a tragedy. Um, but it's not the only wreck out there. And they, those, you know, those 29 men weren't the only people who died. So it's our goal to, uh, to pay respect and honor every single person, every single life that was lost out there. So when people do come up here and walk to our museum, um, read the stories, you know, and then walk around some of our, walk around um, our lighthouse and you can learn about the U S life saving service here. And then you can walk the beach and, and just kind of, think and feel what it was like for these people back then to live that kind of a life. You know, it was a hard life, but you can kind of get that sense um, when you come through our museum. And of course, Whitefish Point was one of the goals. If you were in a storm on Lake Superior, they talk about it with the Edmund Fitzgerald. If she had made it past Whitefish Point into calmer waters, she might have been okay. That was one of the goals that sailors had, the spot that your museum is in there. When, when when nor'easters would come up and uh, and a lot many 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 there's many stories out there that said you know we tried to make it to Whitefish Bay we tried to make it to Whitefish Bay because when you turn that point that hides that hides you from that brunt of the storm a nor'easter on Lake Superior so um, even to this day you know with thousand foot freighters when these storms come up on Lake Superior you can some days you can still see six seven thousand foot freighters anchored in Whitefish Bay hiding from storms just like they did all those years ago. It's actually quite a beautiful sight to see. Yeah, we actually have that here too. We'll have uh, freighters slip into Keweenaw Bay if it's really bad. And I drive up uh, from Launce up the edge of Keweenaw Bay to Houghton every morning at about 4.30. And if the wind is up, I look out on the bay and there'll be a big, long string of lights. And I'll say, okay, we've got a ship or two out in the bay. Always look up to see who is out there taking refuge from the storm. Thankfully, we now have the technology to really reduce the risk to these sailors who are out there. They see weather coming in. They can plot things. We don't get surprised like we did 100 years ago, and that keeps our sailors safer. 
Right, and uh, back then there was a there was a the saying it never blows in the office. So a lot of these captains back then were pressured to go. Um, I'm sure a lot of the captains nowadays with these <laughs> with thousand footers um, have a lot more say whether the ship's going to go or not. Um, I don't know for sure, but I you know if I was the captain of a thousand foot freighter and there was a bad storm on Lake Superior, I'd be hiding behind Whitefish Point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and, and and compare the thousand footers that we have now with the two hundred feet that these uh, ships had before. They must have been far more at risk than our present freighters. Yeah, yeah, I, and we, you know, back then they 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 didn't have near the the weather predicting technology. Yeah. So you know, today we can we can look out. You know, we can look at our apps and see if it's going to you know rain in five days. They didn't know that back nope. then. Nope, had no idea. Uh, they, they take they take off when they shouldn't, you know, uh, and uh, run into a storm the next day, and and that's that was a sad, sad, uh, uh, you know, set of circumstances that a lot of these these people put themselves into. Corey, we have to wrap this up, but if folks want to find out more about the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society, do you have an online presence they can check? Shipwreckmuseum.com. We actually just revamped our website, so uh, there's a, a lot of, I'm adding documentaries day by day, and it's a great uh, resource to, uh, to, to see um, and you know prepare yourself if you come to Whitefish Point. Corey, thank you so much for being on the program and opening up a bit of a window in the past for us this morning. I appreciate you, Todd. Thank you. Thank you.